everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Maryland State Attorney Marilyn Mosby. Back in December, she announced the creation of a sentencing review unit at the Baltimore State Attorney's Office. The SRU will review cases of certain incarcerated people to determine whether the office supports their release. So welcome to the show, Marilyn Mosby. Thank you for having me, David. Um, So why did you guys decide to create a new sentencing review unit? So I think that when we look at what's happened in this country, I think prosecutors have historically played a role and contributed to the epidemic of mass incarceration and racial inequity in this country by making excessive sentence recommendations. And we've also have a a responsibility, a proactive responsibility to right that wrong. And so when you look at what's happened in this country, the United States of America is pretty much an outlier in the world. And my state, Maryland, is an outlier in the nation when it comes to punishing people, particularly people of color. America is not just the largest jailer of people in the world, but the punitive severity and excessive nature of these sentences that are disproportionately imposed against black and brown people are, it's problematic. And so you look at like my state, African-Americans make up a mere 30% of the state population, yet we comprise 70% of the state prison population. That's more than double the national average. When you look at the data, almost 80% of those prisoners currently serving life sentences throughout our state, throughout the entire state, are black. 94% of the more than 800 prisoners sentenced to life in Baltimore City are Black. And so the status quo is neither just nor sustainable, and prosecutors have a responsibility to seek justice over convictions. That's our mission. And this new unit will help put into practice that imperative need to review and, when appropriate, revise sentences that are incompatible with current practices. And how is this going to be different from previous efforts? So, I mean, in my office, there were no previous efforts to kind of reevaluate sentence recommendations, right? Like we have a conviction integrity unit, which was the first in the state of Maryland that actual does claims of actual innocence and reinvestigates claims of actual innocence. Those are individuals that have been wrongly accused, convicted, and incarcerated. You know, under my administration, we've, we've exonerated at this point 10 individuals who have cumulatively served more than 270 years in prison for crimes they did not commit, right? That's separate and apart from a sentencing review unit where this is really dedicated to those individuals that no longer pose a public safety threat or a risk to society, 
but are have been imposed these excessive sentences that are are not in line with what we would we would recommend today right um and so you know that's that's essentially our starting point you know everybody should be given a, a second opportunity for triumph and 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 that's that's what our approach is so this is basically a look back and uh, somebody who was sentenced uh, a while ago, you'll review uh, what their sentence was, review their progress that they've had in, in prison. How does that work? So, yes. I mean, in, in essence, we'll examine the imposition of the sentence and make determinations on whether those individuals serving those life sentences. So these are individuals that have committed rather heinous events um, uh, or crimes. Um, they, whether these these life sentences should be reduced because of age. We know that you know elderly individuals over the age of sixty uh, age out of crime and don't pose a public safety risk. Um, whether that individual has a medical condition right now, the only sort of legal mechanism by which we can even challenge this is through the court order um, by the court of appeals, and in essence taking on whether that person has a vulnerability to this virus, um, rehabilitation, their efforts to better their, their selves um, and their circumstances while incarcerated and or disproportionality, right? Like, like I said, I, I think it's extremely problematic when you look at the fact that we make up 30 black people, make 30% of the state population, 70% of the prison population, yet 80% of those individuals currently serving life sentences and so we have to reflect on that disproportionality and be able to be as a prosecutor in a position to rectify that wrong and i'm just curious i mean what do you think is causing that disproportionate impact on black and brown people i mean i think there are several sort of factors that attribute to the disproportionality of laws that are imposed against poor black and brown people um, and again, I think that prosecutors play a role in, in, in some of our excessive sentence recommendations. We're not the ones that impose the sentence, but we make a recommendation, right? Um, you know, we have a responsibility. Our mission as a prosecutor is to seek justice over conviction. And justice is not black and white. It doesn't look the same in every single circumstance. So understanding and recognizing that, this is what this unit is, is attempting to do, is to rectify that sort of, um, that wrong that has been imposed. Clearly, when you look at the data, disproportionately against poor black and brown people. If you look, for example, um, and I, I can't necessarily attribute the life sentences that are imposed against 80% of the state population of black people, um, but when you look at the laws and ways that they have been enforced, I'll use a very simple example like marijuana possession, right? Um, in the city, in, in, throughout the nation, if you're a black person, you are four times more likely to be arrested for mere possession of marijuana. Um, however, the use, the, the use among white and black people of marijuana is, is, is the same. But in the city of Baltimore, you are six times more likely to be arrested for mere possession of marijuana. And then even after the, the decriminalization of 10 grams or less of marijuana, where officers were assigned to um, issue citations 
42% of the citations that they were issuing were issued to one out of nine police districts, which happens to be 95% black and disproportionately impoverished. That's a small example of the way that laws are imposed disproportionately among black people and poor black people in cities like mine, right? So what that tells you is that even though there's no disparate use, there's a focus and there's an attention on Tyrone in West Baltimore, but not necessarily Tommy in, 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 in the harbor, in the inner harbor of, of, of Baltimore City. So that's the kind of discriminatory sort of enforcement that has been imposed at every level in the criminal justice system that as a prosecutor, you have an obligation to rectify. And that's what we're attempting to do. When we look at the sentences that have been imposed on individuals that have committed heinous offenses, how is it that 80% of them, <laughs> right? Like out of 80% of the, the, the more than 100 individuals that are committing these offenses, eight out of 10 of them that are imposed the most severe sort of sentence, which is a light sentence, are black. And so, you know, there are inherent biases that come into play in these recommendations and implementation of, of sentences. Um, and that is what we're attempting to rectify, understanding and recognizing that that's been the case for decades. So I make this argument a lot um, that uh, black and brown people are disproportionately incarcerated. And unfortunately, it's not just your city. Um, I saw you speak in February uh, in San Francisco. In San Francisco, the jail population is 55% black and it's 6% uh, of the overall population is black. So it may, may even be worse in San Francisco than Baltimore. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I get pushed back on when I raise this point is they say, well, aren't, aren't blacks just the ones that are committing the crimes? And uh, if, if they're serving life sentences, doesn't that just mean that they're the ones that are committing the crimes serious enough to get life sentences? How do you respond to that? I mean, I, I think, it, and you use that simple example. <laughs> Right. This is why I revert back to the marijuana example. We know there's no disparate use among white and black people. However, there's a disparate sort of enforcement of these laws against black people. How do you justify that? You can't, right? And so that's a simple sort of example that the data supports. The fact that you have Black people in a state, and, 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 you know, San Francisco is bad, but Maryland is, is, is among Mississippi and some of the more southern states. It's one of the worst in the incarceration of, of black folks, right? Like, at the end of the day, we're not talking about Baltimore City, which is a majority black city. We're talking about the state of Maryland. We, as African Americans, make up 30% of the state population but 70% of the crime, it's not because we're more inclined to commit crime. <laughs> no, that, that's, simply not the, that's simply not the case. What we've shown through the data and through that simple illustrative example of marijuana is that the enforcement, the targeting, the arrest rate, there's a focus on the poor black and brown community. 42% of the citations that you're issuing it's not in the white district 
in Baltimore City. It's, it's in one particularly impoverished, predominantly people of color, a neighborhood and a community that you are targeting those individuals. And so there has to be some sort of responsibility and acknowledgement that, you know, it, it, it's not because more black people are committing crimes, but that the target and the focus has been on black people in this country. If you look at the exception to the 13th Amendment, which is the abolishment of slavery, the only exception to the dehumanization of individuals is for those that are criminals. And for decades, those that are criminals that have been viewed upon our uh, TV stations and in our newspapers are black people. The war on drugs, which we have now confirmed thanks to Nixon's aid, was really a war on black people to depict black people as criminals and to create a perception that there was no need to have any sort of empathy for those individuals that are criminals. And so we are dealing with the after effects of that. And so we have a responsibility, you know, as a, a black woman in this role, I represent 1% of all elected prosecutors in the country. Think about that. Prosecutors are the ones who decide who's going to be charged, what they're going to be charged with, what sentence recommendations they're going to make, whether someone gets into the criminal justice system in the first place. 95% of the prosecutors in this country are white. 79% are white men. As a woman of color, I represent 1% of all elected prosecutors in the country. That in and of itself is problematic. It, that in and of itself has an, it, 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 an innate sort of bias in the decision-making and the discretion that's being utilized. I don't have to go through cultural sensitivity training or implicit bias training to know how young boys like Freddie Carlos Gray Jr. were being treated by police uh, in, in municipalities all across this country. My life experiences speak for themselves, for itself. And so I, I think that, you know, this argument that, you know, there's just more black people committing, that's, that's not the truth. Yeah, I think that's that's a really incredible stat. One uh, percent of uh, prosecutors are uh, women of color, and uh, would you say twenty five percent are uh, people of color overall? No, seventy seventy nine percent of the prosecutors in this country making those day to day decisions are white males. Ninety five percent of the prosecutors are white. Period. Wow. One percent are black women making these decisions but we don't right? have a race problem in this country right and i would say that that's not the case right <laughs> i think that the the latest um you know administration has highlighted and, and brought to bear some of the issues that we have have tried to, to claim plausible deniability about um racism white supremacy race relations, police brutality, all of those issues are at the forefront of what's happening in America right now. And I'm optimistic that people can no longer claim plausible deniability. The veil of ignorance, I'm a Tuskegee graduate, has been lifted from so many Americans. They recognize that there's systemic racism that is attributed to 
the criminal justice system and, and the laws that are applicable to poor black and brown people in this country. They recognize the race relations and the distrust among communities of color and law enforcement, thanks to iPhones and Androids, right, that, that did what the civil rights movement and the civil rights movement televisions did for those young people who were merely marching to coexist and, 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 and vote. Right. Like this is a very different time, but I'm optimistic in the enlightening and the awakening of the conscience of so many people who have been able to deny systemic racism and the disproportionality of the laws that are imposed against poor black and brown people in the criminal justice system. And so, you know, this is another sort of effort. Like one of the things that I've learned looking at our history and American history, this is our history, not just black history, but is I recognize that our ancestors understood that systemic reform comes from within. And so representing 1% of all elected prosecutors in the country, I'm gonna do everything within my power to um, reform this system that is disproportionately impacted communities that look like me. So I wanna, get back uh, to the uh, sentencing review unit. And um, so let's say I am somebody who's incarcerated. How would I go about getting your attention as to my case? So the criteria that we've set, um, and this is one of the reasons why we've also, um, I have a policy and legislative affairs division that we go down to um, our state capital, which is in Annapolis, and we advocate for changes in the law, but the criteria that we've set for the initial review, which is not wholly sufficient for a recommendation um, to support release, meaning that the decision is not automatic, but we will consider first individuals who have a documented sort of serious medical condition, according to um, the CDC, that places them at a higher risk of serious illness or death if they contract COVID-19. That's number one. And the reason why we have to do that is because we don't have a legal mechanism to be able to reevaluate and reassess these sentences, but for this um, Court of Appeals decision that gives us that autonomy, right? Um, one of the things that we will be advocating for for this legislative session is a second look-back bill that would give prosecutors the ability, a legal mechanism after somebody has served more than 25 years incarceration to be able to evaluate the rehabilitation of that individual, um, again, weighing public safety. So that's the first criteria is this, their vulnerabilities to contract this virus and individuals over the age of 60 who have spent more than 25 years on a life sentence, right? So individuals who are over 60 that have aged out of crime, which we have uh, documented data to support, they do not pose a public safety risk. Um, or individuals that have spent more than 25 years in prison on a life sentence for a crime that was committed as a juvenile, right? And these are the juvenile lifers. Um, and so through our review process, what we <clears throat> will do is we'll consult with the victim and the next of kin. We look at the facts of the case. We look at mitigating circumstances, changes in the sentencing practices, um, what we did, what they did then versus what we do now. Um, the conduct of the individual while they were incarcerated, 
um, their re-entry plan, right? Like we think that it's incredibly important for individuals to get reacclimated into society. So they have to come with a re-entry plan, certificates of achievement, letters of support, length of time in prison, their age, medical conditions, whether they've expressed remorse, um, and positive development, like maybe in their family or their community, what sort of support do they have in place, and the likelihood of, of, of reoffending. So we make all of those sort of recommendations. And I think what is also really important is that in addition to making those recommendations, we reach out to those individuals, the victims and the witnesses and the survivors and the families affected by that crime, which requires us to create like a process that is sensitive to their concerns that will benefit and heal them in ways that allow for a restorative justice process to take place. And and do they get a veto or is it uh, some sort of mediation type process? Well, we actually um, partnered. Uh, it, we When we started the unit, I hired a deputy public defender to come in and, and she's awesome. Um, Becky has been tremendous, um, but she, intends to consult and engage and advise the victim's family throughout the review process. And she also ensured like this restorative response Baltimore, which is an, a local restorative justice organization in the city of Baltimore that offers victims and family members and offenders the chance to be able to reconcile, heal and find peace and closure through mediated conversations between all parties involved, right? Like we, we cannot forget those that have lived with this offense for so long, those survivors of, of, of these acts of, of violence. And so, you know, in addition to that, um, uh, my, my office uh, connects individuals with our victim and witness service user unit. We have a family bereavement and grief counseling division um, that offers lifetime grief counseling to individuals that have been impacted by, by homicide in the city of Baltimore. And so through those mechanisms, we, we attempt to address and, and the, the healing process for those that are survivors of, of these, these crimes and, and events, unfortunate events. Now, who ultimately makes the decision on resentencing? I mean, the way that it works is, I, I told you, those are is a, a set sort of criteria, right? The mitigating circumstances, sentencing practices, all that I've already illustrated, um, that is presented to um, my executive team. They will make a recommendation to me, and then I make the decision as to ultimately whether that person should be resentenced. I see. Um, and then um, the other interesting thing, um, so I, I read your uh, op-ed that you wrote with uh, George Gascon, who just got elected in L.A. Yes. I'm so excited about that. And um, now he's going to look at all cases where people have already served over 15 years, but California has some look-back mechanisms that I think are a little bit beyond what you guys have. Is that something right. that you would like to do eventually? Yeah, that that's what I was referencing, right? Like I have a policy and legislative affairs division that we've been advocating for the past two years, and we're going to advocate. It's on our legislative agenda for this year as well. Um, a second look back bill, which would allow us and give us a legal mechanism as a prosecutor to be able to reevaluate and resentence individuals um, that we deem appropriate. 
um, for individuals who have served more than 25 years incarceration. Um, but right now, we don't have that ability. The only way that we have that ability is through this court order, um, which pretty much indicates that we should consider the vulnerabilities of those that are susceptible to COVID. And so through that legal mechanism, that's what we're using to be able to release individuals um, through this unit. However, we will still be advocating um, for that second look back bill, which would give us a legal mechanism beyond, you know, the vulnerabilities, those individuals that are vulnerable to the to this virus. Now, whenever, you know, uh, we discuss things like prison releases or early releases, people already start getting paranoid. Hey, you're going to release all these dangerous criminals on the street. Is that going to be a problem here? So I, I think it's really, really important um, for people to understand, right, that there are officers throughout the country that have brought in their sort of vision of the role of a prosecutor and to reverse the sort of harms that have been imposed, as we've already talked about, disproportionately against poor black and brown people. So you look at the state's attorney, Aisha Braveboy in Prince George's County, right here in Maryland, Dan Satterberg in Seattle, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, Chessa Budin, San Francisco, Eric Gonzalez in Brooklyn, um, and even George Gascon in Los Angeles. And what we all recognize, right, is that, you know, we are coming out of a global pandemic and at a time when budgets are already tight due to COVID, it's a waste of money to incarcerate those who pose no public safety risk. And those individuals over the age of 60 are not a threat to public safety. All of the data supports that. <laughs> According to the development of criminology and criminal behavior decreases actually as people age and, and their lengthy extended incarceration often does not promote community safety, but rather imposes exorbitant costs on confinement on taxpayers. If you look in Maryland, the Unger ruling um, saw the release of over 200 lifers. The majority were over 60, and 97% of them have been successful in reacclimating into their communities and haven't reoffended nor returned to prison, right? Like, that should be the gauge. If we're talking about public safety, these are not individuals that are going to pose a public safety threat. Um, when you talk about juvenile lifers, right, like, these are individuals that committed an offense when they were juvenile, and they deserve second chances. In the state of Maryland, juvenile lifers have effectively become juvenile lifers without parole, which is in contradiction to the Supreme Court of the United States. And if the goal is rehabilitation, and it should be, then we need to rely on the science that shows that juveniles should be treated differently than adults. And so that's what we're attempting to do through this unit. Again, it's about, you know, understanding, recognizing the responsibility that prosecutors play and having you know, the, the role that we've played in the epidemic of mass incarceration and racial inequity and ensuring that we right that wrong. And I, I think this is a point that needs to be really uh, hammered home because I, I think a lot of people don't really understand the data on aging out of the criminal justice system, that People commit crimes when they're young, when uh, their brain development is not there. And over time, 
uh, you know, as they get older, they start settling into life, they calm down, their hormones are in check, whatever it is, brain development, all sorts of things. And so by the time, you know, you get into your 50s and 60s, you're really not a threat anymore. Correct. <laughs> and you're absolutely right, David. I mean, in 2016, the Supreme Court outlawed mandatory juvenile life without the possibility of parole. This ruling was made after reviewing, as you stated, scientific evidence on juvenile brains, and which recognized that we should be treating juveniles differently than, than, than adults. 23 states across the nation have banned juvenile life without the possibility of parole sentences, recognizing that what you do, as you've already indicated, at 16 years of age, did not always define who you are at 17. And so, you know, when you look at my state, Maryland, there are approximately 300 juvenile lifers that have effectively become juvenile lifers without the possibility of parole because Maryland is one of three states, only three, that require approval from the governor as part of the parole process. So it's been political. Life means life. This was established under Governor Glenn Denning. This has been the position of every governor succeeding him since you know, up until last year when our governor directly approved, you know, the parole of three juvenile lifers. Well, we have 300. There are currently approximately 200 juvenile lifers that are parole eligible that can and should be considered for release. And so this unit will allow us to make those considerations. So I'll, I'll ask the next logical question here. What do you do about the Charlie Mansons of the world, the people that are actually probably dangerous when they're 80 years old? So those individuals, we would not be making a recommendation for release, right? As I stated before, it's, it's a, a, a great deal of, you know, that we're considering in our recommendation for release. It's not something that is, is automatic. It's something that is going to require us to consult with the victim and the next of kin, the fact of the case, mitigating circumstances, changes in sentencing policies, conduct while incarcerated, reentry plans. There's so much that goes into the recommendation for release. And if this is someone that we feel is there's a likelihood of reoffending or a danger to community, to the community, then absolutely not. We would not be making that recommendation. Makes sense. Um, and. And what's really interesting, you know, you, you talk about COVID, but COVID's really forced us to kind of reevaluate the criminal justice system a, as a whole because all of a sudden we have to figure out ways to lower the prison population or unfortunately what's happening out here in California, you get these hotbeds of COVID and people are dying all over the place. So. So COVID's actually forced us to uh, change our thinking or at least change our actions. Our thinking, uh, at least some of us, has already been changed, uh, wouldn't you say? I would agree with you. I think what we've seen um, is that COVID-19 has proven to be a, a major sort of crisis for the criminal justice system, largely in part because of the pre-existing sort of dreadful stain of mass incarceration in this country, which has led to unsanitary, overcrowding, and quite frankly, dehumanizing conditions of confinement. And so with this second sort of surge of coronavirus cases, we have to keep in mind our prisons and jails remain a public health risk and a breeding ground for COVID-19 that not only imperils every individual in those facilities, workers and inmates, 
but the broader community that we live in, right? And so we can and we should be reducing that threat and the amount of local precious resources spent on incarceration by doing what other cities have done, which is to release those individuals who pose no public safety risk to the community. So I got one more question and then I'll let you go. Um, it's slightly different, but uh, I am curious to know uh, how things are going with police reform in Baltimore these days. So I am extremely excited about what is happening um, in the state of Maryland. I think that for far too long, there's been a cultural sort of indifference to black lives where our humanity has not always been seen. So if you look at like Mike Brown or Freddie Carlos Ray Jr. or Eric Garner or Sandra Bland, they were always depicted as criminals. So there was a lack of empathy and indifference that was exhibited towards their death. And what we've seen um, more recently is that that cultural indifference has shifted. And I'm encouraged you know, we look at the AP polls, as I stated before, the veil of ignorance has been lifted from Americans regarding race relations and police brutality against black people in this country, you know, and it's changed since five years ago when it was controversial to say that black lives matter, which should have never been a controversial term. Five years ago is when I charged being one of the first prosecutors in the country you know, to attempt to hold police officers accountable for the death of an innocent 25-year-old black man by the name of Freddie Carlos Gray Jr., who merely made eye contact with police in this high-crime neighborhood and ended up dead. And so, you know, when it comes to police accountability, I think one of the things that I've emphasized on national sort of media outlets is that we can't underestimate the power of the local prosecutor, elected by the community and not appointed to apply one standard of justice. And that is extremely a difficult job because you'll be harassed, intimidated, mocked, ridiculed, hate mail, death threats, competency called into question. My competency has been called into question for the past five years. But what it did, that accountability led to exposure. A week after our charge, those officers, the Department of Justice came in, exposed the discriminatory policing practices of the eighth largest police department in the country. That exposure ultimately led to reform. We now have a federally enforceable consent decree that even despite the Trump administration that tried to stop it is still on record. And because of that reform, we have a spotlight on the entrenched police corruption, where we had rogue police officers for decades that were planting guns and drugs on citizens, right? And so justice is always worth the price paid for its pursuit. I can point to tangible sort of reforms that have been implemented as a direct result of my decision and my office decision to hold those officers accountable when this man 25-year-old, made eye contact with police, was unconstitutionally arrested, was placed into a metal wagon head first, feet shackled and handcuffed, whose pleas for medical attention were ignored after his spine was partially severed in the back of that wagon, right? Like, I can point to tangible reforms. We have cameras in the in the vehicles, in, in every single vehicle. There's a mandate for, uh, for officers to call a medic when a prisoner requests. There's a mandate to seatbelt all prisoners. There's an affirmative responsibility for for officers to intervene when their fellow officers cross the line. There's use of force and de-escalation policies that emphasize the sanctity of life in the city of Baltimore. But statewide, what we're talking about are those systems that I've been talking about for the past five years that prevented a, a conviction in the Freddie Gray case, systems that prevent police accountability, police investigating themselves, 
right? We need independent police agencies, whistleblower protection to, to, to succumb and, and to get over this blue wall of silence that exists in, in, within police departments throughout the country, right? Like this need for us to repeal law, the Law Enforcement Bill of Rights, which ties the hands of police departments to get rid of rogue police officers. This need that some states have to, for police officers to be able to circumvent the, uh, the communities that they represent by electing bench trials because they feel the judge is going to be more deferential to them, right? This need for there to be civilian participation on administrative board hearings. Like, these are all systems that have to change that we are discussing, not just in the state of Maryland, but nationally. And so that is encouraging because, as I stated before, there was a perception just five years ago that none of these issues existed. And now there's no more plausible deniability. People have to acknowledge and recognize that there is a need for reform. There is a need to address the systemic racism that is attributed to the criminal justice system in this country. And I'm optimistic with the new administration that we'll be able to do that. Awesome. All right. Well, I want to thank you for being on our show and uh, taking time out from your busy schedule. No, thank you for having me. I appreciate it, David. That was Marilyn Mosby. She's the state attorney for in Maryland. Uh, represent- and for Baltimore City. <laughs> I, I was getting there. <laughs> Baltimore City. And uh, she she's a reformer, and she was a reformer before the current wave of reformers. So she gets extra plaudits because uh, she had to wear it on her sleeve for a long time by herself. So thank you for being on our show. Thank you, David. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate you. That was Marilyn Mosby. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwell. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.